and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hello, Lauren. You're back. I came back. Julia and her husband went to England and all of the UK. All of the UK. Uh, and they were gone for two weeks and I miss them very much. We didn't miss a beat though. We, we did our podcast as as usual. <laughs> As per usual. So yes. if you notice any like sound and inconsistencies, it was, you know, because I had to travel. Because I was like ocean. in a different time zone. Yeah, that's true. Also, uh, the same, the sa- your first week gone was the same week that Steve was out at a conference mm-hmm. and I was alone. <laughs> so every day at work, I'd come in and be like, I'm going to tell you every thought I've had in the past 12 hours. <laughs> Just have no one to talk to you. Um, so I'm glad you're back. Welcome back. Thanks. It sounds like you had a wonderful we time. We had a wonderful time. We went England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland. Um, had no major mishaps other That's than great. the one time that I thought I knew where I was going when we had to get a bus <laughs> for our um, road trip up to uh, Northern Ireland from Dublin. And I sent us to the wrong place. And then we hauled our asses across Dublin at like <laughs> seven in the morning but like you made a whole it. mile to get to it, and we found the bus that that was heading up to the northern coast. So it was great, and it all worked out. Yeah, it all worked out, and not for nothing. It's a great story. Oh, sure. So there you go. Yeah, it's all set. Yeah, I I did not come back with an accent as I expected to. I mean, it I was, was hoping for it. It was very tough for me while we were there to not just keep talking back to people in the accent and honestly I did yeah. for a lot of it I I um I did manage to acquire like a Canadian version of sorry whenever oh, we were okay. like sorry. you know like excuse me sorry yeah like I don't know where that came from maybe it's like a blend you know what I mean like if you spend <laughs> if an American spends enough time in the UK we develop we just become Canadian okay it's yeah. like an osmosis thing where it's like a certain percentage <laughs> of you turns. We, we like their candy. Exactly. We say some of their sayings. Yeah. Uh-huh. We like their music, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Put maple syrup on everything. Why? I mean, why not? You know? <laughs> Josh discovered his love of HP sauce when we were over there. Oh, brown yeah, sauce. Of course, the brown yeah. sauce. Yeah. You need some, that's breakfast sausage with brown sauce. Mm. Ugh. What's in a brown sauce? It's kind of like a mellower barbecue sauce in oh, a way. Okay. Yeah. All right. I can see that. Yeah. On sausage? Yes. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Good. Well, I'm glad you're back. Yeah. And uh, we're back back to normal, back in the U.S. of A. And <laughs> <laughs> um, we've been getting a lot of nice uh, emails and tweets from people. Hello to our new listeners. Yeah. From- hello, everyone. If you found us from um, Triviality or Trivial Warfare, hello. Welcome. Welcome. We had such a fun time guesting on those podcasts. Oh, my um, God. It was so much fun. And those guys were so nice of a- to invite us on. So um, thank I, you to them. I now consider Triviality to be, I mean, nothing against Trivial Warfare, but I consider Triviality to be our brother podcast. <laughs> So they're our brother podcast. So be sure to tune in with them. And uh, yeah, Trivial Warfare was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was so much fun. So we did get some emails from people and uh, a lot of topic suggestions. Yeah, so that's yeah, very thank kind. You. And we did get a couple of people saying that they wanted more art mm-hmm. related, like artists um, that are famous, but they don't know like anything about them except that they're famous kind of thing. Yeah. So I was all too happy yeah. to provide. So... Uh, Today, my topic is called, what are you, some kind of Rembrandt? Art history. (laughs) So 
Is that a thing people say? No, no. So, <laughs> so, I'm gonna, so according to my father, Dave Tag, uh-huh. you know, friend of the podcast, father of the podcast, um, my dad says that Rembrandt is the most famous artist because of the phrase, what are you, some kind of Rembrandt? <laughs> Dave Tag. Dave Tag, that's not a saying. He's he is positive. And his only evidence his only evidence for this, I was like, what are you talking about? How, I mean, there are a lot of famous artists. He goes, No, no, no. What are you, some kind of Rembrandt? He just kept repeating it to me. No, 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 no. What are you, some kind of Rembrandt? Right? I was like, that's not a reason. <laughs> that's not a that's not a saying. It's not. I've never heard anyone say it except for him. So <laughs> So in honor of Dave Tag, oh, my boy. topic is called What Are You Some Kind of Rembrandt? And to start, we're going to start with Rembrandt, actually. Great. My uh, man. We're, we're going to go in uh, semi-chronological order. I have an extra piece of paper. All right. <laughs> Thanks, printer. Anyway, I hope this is in order. We'll find we out. lost page two. Mm, uh, mm, I think we're good. Okay. <clears throat> Here we go. Rembrandt. He was born July 15th, 1606, cancer, uh, and died October 4th, 1669. Uh, he was the ninth child of a family of 11, and his full name uh, was Rembrandt Hamanzoon van Rijn. Uh, he was a Dutch draftsman, painter, and printmaker who worked during what was known as the Dutch Golden Age. So the Dutch Golden Age was the 17th, in the 17th century, which was a period in the history of the Netherlands in which Dutch trade, science, military, and art were amongst the most acclaimed in the world. And uh, you could read more about this in the book An Embarrassment of Riches by Simon Shama, which is about the Dutch Golden Age. It's very good. I'm going to be talking a lot about Simon Shama, who is my favorite art historian. Um, he is British. He is theatrical. He is witty. And uh, I want nothing more in my life than to wrap my arms around him and give him a platonic but warm hug. <laughs> Noted. So keep that in mind, anybody who knows Simon Shama. Okay. <clears throat> he opened a studio at age 18 in 1624 and soon began taking students four years later. Uh, among them was the great Dutch painter uh, Gerrit Dow. Uh, he was a fine skilder, which uh, means a fine painter. He was a candlelight and niche painter. This is Gerrit Dow. Uh, candlelight painter was, they would use um, like candlelight as the only light mm-hmm. in the painting. So it created a lot of like high contrast shadow and mm-hmm. light. And if you could really get the, the glow, like very realistically, that means you are a real fine skilda. Uh, and also niche paintings is like, you know, women in uh, like a window frame kind of thing. And they've got like a bird or whatever. So it looks like it's supposed to be like a trompe loy okay. kind of like, she's just popping out of this painting and like saying, hello, it's usually people playing like a lute or like feeding a bird or setting a bird free, you know, something to do with like kind of like three dimensionality kind of moving out. Um, Rembrandt also did these things early in his career, but he really wasn't known as um, a candlelight painter or a fine skilda. So uh, in 1629, Rembrandt was discovered by the statesman Constantine Huygens, who was the father of the Dutch mathematician and physicist Christian Huygens, uh, who procured for Rembrandt important commissions from the court at The Hague. Uh, as a result of this connection, Prince Frederick Hendrik continued to purchase paintings from Rembrandt until 1646. Frederick Hendrik? Frederick Hendrik. Oof. Yep. Old Freddie Hen. That's him. 
Um, so one thing you should know about Rembrandt is that he had a real shopping problem. Uh, he loved to collect art, prints, and antiques, and he went nearly bankrupt in 1656. I was going to say, <laughs> one of your, like, his reincarnation, but oh, I just made that. No, it's true. <laughs> I have a real shopping problem. I was born in July. <laughs> I am an extremely prolific and incredible painter. Uh, I have a... Uh, I have a student named Harriet Dow. <laughs> well, that was that was the oh real, my that god was the real giveaway how for did me. It not, how did it not connect with me? So in 1634, he married his first wife. Her name was Saskia van Eulenburg. Uh, she was the cousin of his art dealer. He painted her a lot, and he used her as a model for several female biblical and mythological subjects, as well as a bunch of portraits and what is known as tronies of her. Tronies are um, like bust bust length portraits mm-hmm. of people either you know fictional like made up or you know models Mm -hmm. they're usually wearing like a costume of some kind or a funny hat and uh they are sometimes making like a funny facial expression they're kind of like how's that spelled uh trony t-r-o-n-i-e-s tronies and the singular trony is i-e okay um so the girl with the pearl earring yeah she's a trony because that Ugh, what a real trony i know right she was a trony uh because she's wearing like a, a turban okay and that the clothing that she's wearing and even the jewelry was not is not anything that a normal like day-to-day dutch mm-hmm. woman would be wearing so um yeah girl with a pearl earring is a trony um so they had four children but only one survived uh Titus Van Rijn, who was also a frequent subject of his father's, and Saskia died soon after Titus's birth, probably from, say it with me, tuberculosis. Oh. oh. You're some, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both are legitimate ways to die during this time period, so. <laughs> she died of tuberculosis. Uh, before she died, this shrewd bitch, she set up a trust for Titus that Rembrandt could only use if he didn't remarry. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Because she knew he had a shopping problem. Yeah, Yeah. I like that. Uh, So her nurse and Titus's caretaker, her name was Hieta Dix, became Rembrandt's lover. And she would later charge Rembrandt with breach of promise, which is a euphemism for seduction under breached promise to marry, and was awarded alimony of 200 guilders a year. Wait, really? Yeah. Like they broke up? Yeah. So essentially, so I was like, when I'm writing this, when I saw this in my research, I was like, how is this not a thing anymore? Because I would be making some <laughs> bank. Like they break up and he gives her alimony because she was like, you told me you'd marry me. Ooh, yeah. Wow. So 200 guilders a year, please. Netherlands, man. Man. Yeah. Progressive people. Um, so Rembrandt worked to have her committed for 12 years to an asylum or a poorhouse, <gasps> uh-huh. which was called a bridewell at Gouda. Um, after learning she had pawn jewelry, he had given her that once belonged to Saskia. So, I mean, oh, everybody in this, everybody it's... in this is not great. Um, so in the late 1640s, Rembrandt began a relationship with the much younger uh, Handrichi Stoffels, who had initially been his maid. Uh, and in 16... <laughs> Rembrandt, there's other people besides the people that work in your house. Honestly, man. he didn't leave that often. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, in 1654, they had a daughter named Cornelia. Uh, bringing Hendrik He a summons for the Reformed Church to answer the charge that she had committed the acts of a whore with Rembrandt the painter. And she admitted this and was banned from receiving communion, which was a big t- deal mm-hmm, at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she became Rembrandt's common law wife since they couldn't officially marry thanks to Saskia's will. Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, Rembrandt outlived both Hendrik He, 
who died in 1663, and Titus, who died in 1668, mm, which is sad. Okay. Uh, he left a baby daughter. Um, he died within a year of his son on October 4th, 1669 in Amsterdam and was buried as a poor man in an unknown grave in the Westerkirk. Oh, wow. It was in a numbered Kirkgraf, which was a grave owned by the church, somewhere under a tombstone in the church. And after 20 years, his remains were taken away and destroyed, as was customary with the remains of poor people at the time. See, I thought he was... I thought he was rich during his lifetime. No? no, I mean, he did make good money because, uh-huh. and I'll talk about this in a bit, that his his uh, etchings and prints yeah. were disseminated all over Europe. Yeah. And he was famous, but because he couldn't control his spending, he was constantly owing money or constantly in the red. Mm-hmm. So by the time he died, he had so many wow like debts that he was poor, which is sad, but kind of his own fault. Um, so let's talk about a style, right? Yeah. So Rembrandt was very influenced by the greater European Baroque style, uh, which was super hot during this time period, but he was more into facial expressions and a sense of realism. So Baroque style is, uh, if you can uh, imagine, it's like Bernini. So very muscular men and women, and they're usually like twisting themselves into like wild positions and like dancing and there's a lot of like fabric and it's very dramatic and the colors are bright it's very like mana like the music of the time period <laughs> so very dramatic very like so you have bach and you have bach mozart yes and you have bernini and you have you know all of these baroque things happening at the same time in europe so rembrandt liked this he was like ooh, this is good but he wanted it to look more realistic. Like, not okay. everybody is going to be... Ripped. Yeah. All, not all the women are pale white. Not all the men are beautifully bronzed and muscular. You know, with you know the women don't have, like, perfectly pert breasts and all of this stuff. Mm. So he wanted a more realistic look, which he called the greatest and most natural movement uh, in a letter to Huygens at one point. So among the most prominent characteristics of Rembrandt's work are his use of chiaroscuro. Mm-hmm. So chiaroscuro... Um, is the theatrical employment of light and shadow derived from Caravaggio, or more likely from the Dutch Caravaggisti, but adapted for very personal means. So chiaroscuro um, def- just means like light and dark. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Caravaggio was kind of the purveyor of this in the early Baroque period. So there's a lot of like very dark backgrounds mm-hmm. and very highlight on the figures and the people in the foreground. Okay. Um, almost like there's like... Um, like a bonfire just behind the painter. So the light on it is like really strong. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, also notable are his dramatic and lively presentation of subjects devoid of the rigid formality that his contemporaries often displayed and a deeply felt compassion for mankind, irrespective of wealth and age. Um, he also did over 40 self portraits of himself in paint and many more in etchings and drawings. And he would frequently put himself in his history and biblical paintings. Um, we know what he looks like because he painted himself all the time time. because he would sit in a mirror and make facial expressions Mm -hmm. like smiling and like sticking his tongue out and like moving his eyebrows around. And he would do studies of this to kind of get good facial expressions for his paintings. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there are still several, uh, the Memorial Art Gallery where I work, Mm -hmm. uh, we have a um, self portrait of him. It's man sitting with a globe or something like that. I forgot the name of it. Um, And then the Isabella Stewart Gardner has a cell portrait of him as a young man and the light in it is so gorgeous, just like glowing. Mm -hmm. So beautiful. Um, 
so he never left the Dutch Republic. He never traveled anywhere, unlike major, many major artists who studied in Europe. But he became internationally famous thanks to the dissemination of his etchings and prints. Mm-hmm. Um, so his most famous works are uh, 1632's The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp. Oh, yeah. Which is that guy who's like slicing open a cadaver. And, and a all bunch those... of people are standing around him. Yep. And then the sampling officials or the syndics of the Draper's Guild, which was 1662, which is a bunch of Dutch guys in big black hats and like roughly, and they're all sitting around a table and like looking at the viewer, like over their shoulders. I'll be posting these on Twitter and Facebook Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, 1633, I know, which is still missing from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast Last Scene, um, which was out of the Boston Globe, it's really well done. Um, It was earlier this fall. It was about 11 episodes or so, um, but they did an in-depth report about the heist at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in 1990, and they interviewed um, both of the guards that were there, and like one of them had never been interviewed before, and they go down this path of like all these different theories that could have happened, and they talk Mm -hmm. to these like different people that were interviewed at the time as suspects. Oh, it was really, really well done. Obviously still haven't figured it out. They think they think they were really, really close to getting the paintings back in 2008 from some French gangsters. Oh my God. Um, But something, Something somebody kind of got tipped off. Somebody got spooked and it, and it vanished again. (gasps) So yeah, really fascinating. Could you imagine getting those back? Oh my God, I would die. Yeah. Well, it's because like with Rembrandt, there are, you know, like you said, there he painted like 600 paintings or something yeah, like yeah. that, you know, or the people in his school under him, all that stuff. Yeah. But um, Vermeer, I don't know if you're going to talk about Vermeer. Later. No, I'm not going to okay. talk about Vermeer. But Vermeer, there's only like 32 known Vermeers yeah, in the world. Exactly. And one of them is missing. Yep. From the Isabel Stewart Garden Museum. So if they keep, if they start hearing about like underground, like somebody has mm-hmm. a Vermeer that they want to get rid of, like they can pretty much pinpoint that this is what that is. Yeah. So. So crazy. Interesting. Last scene. Last scene. Podcast plug from Julian. Yeah. Julian Novakovic. Uh, so yeah, the storm on the sea of Galilee is a very beautiful painting that is still missing from the gardener. Also the night watch from 1642. Yes. Um, I have a little bit of extra information about that too. Uh, so it's called officially the militia company of captain Franz Bonning Coke. Okay. Okay. So, it's pretty big. He painted it between 1640 and 1642. Uh, this picture was called a De Nachtwacht by the Dutch and the Night Watch by Sir Joshua Reynolds because by the 18th century, the picture was so dimmed and defaced that it was almost indistinguishable and it looked quite like a night scene. Oh. After it was cleaned, it was discovered to represent broad day, a party of <laughs> musketeers stepping from a gloomy courtyard into the blinding sunlight. So uh, the piece was commissioned for the new hall of the Clovenius Dulen, uh, the musketeer branch of the civic militia. And contrary to what is often said, the work was hailed as a success from the beginning. Uh, parts of the con- canvas were cut off. Approximately 20% from the left-hand side was removed um, to make the painting fit its new position when it was moved to Amsterdam Town Hall in 1715. Um, so the painting is now in the Rijksmuseum. Yeah. Also, another painting uh, is called The Conspiracy of Claudius Civilis. It was painted between 1661 and 1662. It was originally the largest painting that Rembrandt had ever painted at about 16 by 16 feet. It was huge. Oh, my gosh. 
Um, it's in the shape of a lunette or a half moon, which is usually for a recess space above a door or a window. Mm-hmm. Um, and the painting was commissioned by the Amsterdam City of Co- City Council for the town hall. Um, after the work had been pl- in place briefly, it was returned to Rembrandt, who may have never been paid. They were like, it's fine. We don't like it. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so Rembrandt drastically cut down the painting to a quarter of the original size to be sold. And it is the last secular history painting he finished. Um, in fact, the rest of the painting is lost. There's a lot of like, um, preparatory sketches that survive that show like where other characters would be. And it was supposed to be like, I don't remember what the story is, but it's Claudius Civilis is, you know, he's a, a half blind elderly emperor who his you know his people are like turning against him and this is like his last ditch effort to save his you know his country Uh and he makes his loyalists like touch his sword to like you know pledge their loyalty to him no matter what even though all the people are against them and that kind of thing and it was painted very late in Rembrandt's career and it's very like sketchy and it's very um like the the Claudius is very ugly. He looks beaten and worn and like war scarred and stuff. And um, Simon Shama talks a lot about it in The Power of Art, which was a PBS special and also a book. Um, so it's very interesting, but it's what's extra interesting is that he cut it down so drastically that this like great history painting mm-hmm. is lost to history because Rembrandt was oh, like, well, wow. let's see if I can cut it down Snip, for Sim, someone's Snip. couch and just <laughs> cut it up. So. Um, yeah, if you're interested in that kind of thing, definitely the power of art, Simon Shama. It's great. So that was Rembrandt. And so my next two, my last two, I guess, um, someone, someone had emailed us and said, you know, I don't really know the difference between like Manet and Monet. Uh So I'm going to do Manet and then I'm going to do Monet. Ah, Manet and your Monet. Your Manets and your Monets. So first one, Edouard Manet. He was born January 23rd, 1832, and died April 30th, 1883. He was born in Paris in the ancestral mansion on the Rue des Petits Augustines, now Rue Bonaparte, to, the, to an affluent and well-connected family. In 1856, Manet opened a studio, and his style in this period was characterized by loose brushstrokes, simplification of details, and the suppression of transitional tones, which basically just means that he had very high contrast between dark and light. There wasn't mm-hmm. like a transitional tone to make it look realistic. Um, so there you go. Uh, adopting the current style of realism initiated by Gustave Courbet, he painted the absinthe drinker, which was his first like entrance into this kind of realism, uh, and other contemporary subjects such as beggars, singers, gypsies, people in cafes and bullfights. He was really into bullfights. Yeah. Sidebar. Have you ever had absinthe? Like on purpose? Uh, no, only accidentally. And it was very, it was unfortunate. (laughs) I'm not like a licorice or a, um, anisette flavor person it actually turns my stomach so no i do not like absinthe what about you oh, i've drank a lot of absinthe <laughs> <laughs> when the steelers played super bowl whatever the hay against the green bay packers i cannot we were wait at to my hear why cousin's house this. and my mom and i started my mom and brother and i were drinking absinthe like cocktails and um as this as it became more and more evident that the Steelers were not going to win that game, oh, no. I just kept drinking harder and harder. Ugh. And then we kind of turned off the game. <laughs> and I went upstairs for a minute and I came back down and I was like, guys, what if we won? Like, what if we turned off the game too early and we won? Okay. And they're like, Joel, it, no, it's over. It was, I was... Very drunk. Very drunk. Oh, my goodness. The absinthe, man. Just Oof. really, really gets you. Well, if you do it with enough sugar... 
maybe the licorice kind of doesn't uh doesn't hit you as hard i guess so then it would just I, I imagine it would just taste like licorice candy then and then that actually makes it worse for me that's unfortunate so can you still drink can you drink absinthe uh, now or is it like nah, did that kill it for I you really like it anyway no. i don't know why i was drinking it to begin with <laughs> well you guys were losing it's understandable yeah. um so uh manet really enjoyed speaking of uh, really enjoyed painting depictions of leisure, mm-hmm. meaning people just hanging out. Yeah. He took a, he did a lot of paintings of people just chilling yeah. out. Hanging out on the grass? Just hanging out on the grass, yes. Well, don't spoil it. Um, <laughs> so after the death of his father in 1862, oh, this is juicy. You ready for this? All right. Here's some hot tea about some Edouard. Manet. Oh, I was trying to think of a good word. You it's can okay. take that out. Don't worry about it. So it, after the death of his father in 1862, Manet married Suzanne Lehnhoff in 1863. Lehnhoff was a Dutch-born piano teacher, two years Manet's senior, with whom he had been romantically involved for approximately 10 years. Um, Lehnhoff initially had been employed by Manet's father, Auguste, to teach Manet and his younger brother piano. She also may have been Auguste's mistress. Uh, oh. In 1852, Lehnhoff gave birth, out of wedlock, to a son, Leon Coella Lehnhoff. Whose baby was it? Scandal. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, even at the time, people were like, whose baby is it? Yeah. Oh. No one knew what, and that's why she gave him her last oh. name. Because she, well, I mean, they were both men, yeah. but like, no one knew Yikes. whose baby it was. Yep. So uh, Manet painted his wife and son, question mark, uh, fairly frequently. So he became friends. Son or brother. Son or brother. Brother, son. Oh. <laughs> I hate it. The French are so weird and gross. Um, we don't have any French listeners, right? Anyway, the French during this time period. I mean, late 19th century. Come on. Uh, so he became friends with the Impressionists Edgar Degas, Claude Monet, Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Alfred Sisley, Paul Cézanne, and Camille Pissarro through another painter, Berta Morisot, who was a member of the group and drew him into their activities. So they're very into like the French salon, you know, like ah, they're yes. painters who paint like the real world and they weren't, they weren't necessarily part of the, like they wanted to get into the salon, mm-hmm. uh, but because th- some of their paintings were so scandal that, you know, they were kind of the outsiders. Okay. Um, so in his mid-40s, Manet's health deteriorated and he developed severe pain and partial paralysis in his legs. In 1879, he began receiving hydrotherapy treatments at a spa near Modin, intended to improve what he believed was a circulatory problem. But in reality, he was suffering from locomotor ataxia, which is a node side effects of, say it with me, chlamydia. Syphilis. <laughs> We're just I mean, not we both- on the same page tonight. <laughs> It's because you've been gone for so long. <laughs> syphilis. Known side effect of syphilis. Uh, you, we weren't that off from each other, though. I mean, they're both <laughs> venereal diseases. Bad venereal diseases. <laughs> syphilis especially. Um, so in April 1883, his left foot was amputated because of gangrene Oof. due to complications from syphilis and rheumatism. Yikes. Uh, he died 11 days later on April 30th in Paris. He is buried in the Passy Cemetery in the city. So... Let's talk about his style. Manet. Uh, Even though he began his career as a painter of realism, Manet is best known as a transitional artist from realism to impressionism. Yes. So the hallmarks of this include his aforementioned high contrast and almost woodblock-like outlines. Kind of like a cartoonish Mm -hmm. quality to his uh, human figures. 
Uh, plus his subject matter. The man loved to depict prostitution and the role of women in French society at the time. So many naked women. Oh my God, so many naked women. One of which is uh, Les Dujeunets sur l'herbe. <laughs> or Luncheon on the Grass, which is what I will call it from here on out. Um, which is famous for its depiction of two fully dressed men at a picnic in the woods while a nude woman sits next to them and makes intense eye contact with the viewer. What does it all mean, Lauren? Well, let me tell you. So the treatment is sketchy and modern, but the subject matter has roots in old masters, as a matter of fact, uh, with Manet basing his figures in their various states of undress on two Italianate Renaissance paintings, which one is called Pastoral Concert and the other one is called The Tempest. They are um, alternately... You know, they're attributed to a bunch of different Italian mm-hmm. artists because no one knows who they did them, who did them. But um, so this idea of he was like looking back to the old masters and kind of like updating them, which was a very like modern thing. Okay. Um, so, you know, nudity is cool if it's in like a historical or a biblical painting. But if you're depicting two like modern dudes sitting eating lunch and there's just like a naked lady sitting there, that's shocking. Yeah. And apparently... Um, people were like scandal scandal so um, as he had with luncheon on the grass Manet again paraphrased a respected work by a renaissance artist in the painting Olympia which was in Mm -hmm. 1863 Um, a nude portrayed in a style reminiscent of early studio photographs but whose pose was based on Titian's Venus of Urbino from 1538 Uh, the painting is also reminiscent of Francisco Goya's painting the nude Masha from 1800 Uh, Manet embarked on the canvas after being challenged to give the salon a nude painting to display. The salon was like, give us a nude. (laughs) You won't do it. You won't won't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Do it. You won't do it. And he was like, watch me in French. Um, (laughs) He said in French. Um, So his uh, uniquely frank depiction of a self-assured, sex worker was accepted by the Paris Salon in 1865, where it created a scandal. (laughs) According to Antonin Proust, only the precautions taken by the administration prevented the painting from being punctured and torn by offended viewers. The painting was controversial partly because the nude is wearing some small item of clothing such as an orchid in her hair, a bracelet, a ribbon around her neck, and mule slippers, all of which accentuated her nakedness, sexuality, and comfortable courtesan lifestyle. So I'm going to do a quick description of the painting in case you have not seen it. So It is a woman lying on a chaise lounge. She is very nude. She is looking directly at the viewer, making very intense eye contact. Her skin is very, very pale white, and the outlines of her body are very distinctive. Mm -hmm. Um, She's wearing like little slip-on mules. She's got an orchid in her hair. She's wearing like a little choker, very 90s. Um, Her one arm is kind of like propped up next to her, just kind of like resting comfortably on the chaise. And her left hand is actually covering her pudenda, as they call it, her 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 crotchal region, as we say in art history. That's what so, they say. Yeah, that's what they say. Um, next to her, looking at her and holding a very large bouquet of flowers is an African servant. Right. And at the end of her chaise lounge is a black cat, like fully, like, ah! like freaking out, like all puffy and its tail is up and it's very like... I don't remember the cat. Yeah, the cat is a big deal because oh, well, I'll tell you about the cat, what okay. it means. So the orchid in her hair, her upswept hair, the black cat and bouquet of flowers are all recognized symbols of sexuality at the time. That black cat, man. That black cat is like, whoa. Like the French came in and they were like, is that a black cat right there? Am I looking at a black cat or not? Because I am horrified. They're very intense. So 
Um, this modern Venus's body is thin counter to prevailing standards. She's, she looks like her body looks modern Mm -hmm. in that she has a very flat stomach. She's basically has an ideal body of like today Uh while back then that would have been like, Whoa, she's too real. Like she, she doesn't have like the soft voluptuousness of a painted nude, which is what people would have been much more comfortable with viewing in, in art. Um, and the painting's lack of idealism rankled viewers. So it was like, people were like, oh, this just looks too much like a real person. Um, the painting's flatness inspired by Japanese woodblock art serves to make the nude more human and less voluptuous. And a fully dressed black servant is featured exploiting the then current theory that black people were hypersexed. Yeah, oh, it's huh. very uncomfortable. That she is wearing the clothing of a servant to a courtesan here furthers the sexual tension of the piece. So Olympia's body as well as her gaze is unabashedly confrontational. The look on her face is like, yeah, and that's basically what she looks like she's saying to you. Um, She defiantly looks out at her servant offers flowers from one of her male suitors. Although her hand rests on her leg, hiding her pubic area, the reference to traditional female virtue is ironic. A notion of modesty is notoriously absent in this work. A contemporary critic denounced Olympia's quote, shamelessly flexed left hand which seemed to him a mockery of the relaxed shielding hand of Titian's Venus. Likewise, the alert black cat at the foot of the bed strikes a sexually rebellious note in contrast to that of the sleeping dog in Titian's portrayal of the goddess in his Venus of Urbino. Okay. So her so hand it was supposed to be a contrast. Yeah. It was supposed okay. to be a contrast. Like, look at this sweet sleeping dog. Look at the sexy black cat. You know, like it's, <laughs> and her hand is flexed. It's not like, and it's true. She's not like, just like, resting yeah Yeah. you think of like venus emerging from her shell and she kind of is like gently covering her her crotchal region (laughs) that's the art world term for it i mean i work in an art museum now what can i say i I speak in this high academic way now get used to it everybody (laughs) but her hand is flexed like she's trying to draw attention to it while cover um which is kind of genius and it's just i mean i can't draw hands so (laughs) it's kind of a good thing so another her his other famous works are A Bar at the Folly Bergere from 1882, mm-hmm. which is that one of the girl who's the bartender. She's wearing that very tight um, bodice mm-hmm. and you see all of like the liquor behind her and that kind of thing. She's got like a, she's very cute. So that's a famous painting. And then also a very famous painting of his is called The Pfeiffer or The Young Flautist from 1866. It's just a little boy playing a flute. Aww. I mean, it's nice. It's perfectly fine. Very opposite to his um, scandalous, his scandalous nude women. Uh, Olympia. Olympia is very beautiful. It's a great piece, and um, this idea of like a reclining nude, like Olympia, was done throughout history. Another one is um, Ong's uh, Odalisk. Odalisk. Yes. I was thinking of when yeah, you yeah. First said and it's funny because the other thing is, is that Odalisk and other Odalisks of that. It's usually like the gaze is. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, uh, kind of held back in a way, either they're looking over their shoulder, kind of like coyly. Mm-hmm. So it's, even though they're making eye contact with the viewer, it's not confrontational. It's yeah. kind of like, a, oh no, you caught me kind of thing. It's supposed to be like yeah. sexy and coy or the eyes are downturned or she's like paying attention to her, to her toilette, mm-hmm. you know, like she's undressing or dressing or whatever. But Olympia is very frank and yeah. she has like a very... Um, intense presence in the painting and that's what people were scandalized by also people were scandalized by just about everything at the same yeah. like for a bunch of bohemians they were like oh Mon like, just, 
<laughs> just you wonder why you don't have any, we don't have any french listeners Lauren <laughs> just offended them all away <laughs> nah, the irish would tell us if we had any french listeners okay all right next we have claude monet he was born november 14th 1840 died december 5th 1926 he was born oscar claude monet in paris only child of a ship chandler and a singer they called him oscar he signed his very early works o monet he was drafted into the army to fight the war in algeria he got sick with typhoid and his aunt arranged to get him out of the military and into art school so he was disillusioned with the traditional art taught at art schools, and in 1862, Monet became a student of Charles Glier in Paris, where he met Renoir, Frederick Basile, and Alfred Sisley. Uh, together, they shared new approaches to art, painting the effects of light and plein air with broken colors and rapid brush strokes in what later came to be known as Impressionism. So en plein air means they would paint outside, outside in the plain air. Uh, Camille Doncio, who was his model as well as the model of artist Manet and Pierre-Auguste Renoir, became pregnant and gave birth to their first child, Jean, in 1867, and Monet and Camille married on June 28, 1870, just before the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War. Very ah. romantic. So from the late 1860s, Monet and other like-minded artists met with rejection from the conservative um, Beaux-Arts Academy, which held its annual exhibition at the Salon de Paris. Uh, during the latter part of 1873, Monet, Renoir, Camille Pissarro, and Alfred Sisley organized the Anonymous Society of Painters, Sculptors, and Engravers, which was in French, but then I did a Google Translate, because I can only say so many things in French before <laughs> Julia will throw something at me. So they created this this separate organization mm-hmm. to be like, well, if you're not going to let us in, then we're going to do our own make thing. Make our own thing. We're going to make our own club. We're going to make our own club, and you're you not invited. You can't come. You can't come. Um, so they exhibited their artworks independently and at their first exhibition held in April, 1874, Monet exhibited the work that was to give the group its lasting name. He was inspired by the style and subject matter of previous modern painters like Pissarro and Edward Monet. So the painting that gave the term impressionism to impressionism and impressionists was called impression sunrise. Wow. Yes. It was painted in 1872. It's very beautiful. It's depicting a Le Havre port landscape. And from the painting's title, the art critic Louis Leroy, in his review, okay, here we go, L'Exposition des Impressionistes, which appeared in La Chiaravari. You're laughing at me. (laughs) No. (laughs) Just the, like, you're, she's the most confident person I know, but then when she has to read French, she gets this, like, tiny look of terror in her face. It's because there's so many, there's extra vowels and things. Oh, mamma mia. Um, So in (laughs) La Chiarivari, he coined the term impressionism. And it was intended as a disparagement, but the impressionists appropriated the term for themselves. Great. Much like the Fauves, which was an art group who were called the Fauves as Uh like, ooh, the Fauves. And they're like, yeah, we're the Fauves. Or the Ashcan School, Uh which someone said, it looks like someone kicked over an Ashcan and they were like, we're the Ashcan School. (laughs) Or the Spice Girls. Do you remember how the Spice Girls were? (laughs) Like, it was like, all right, make this good. Oh yeah, you know, here we go. All right, so I don't know. Tell me what I want. (laughs) What you really, really want, Julia? So apparently the sun or something, when the Spice Girls were first coming out, Uh 
they made fun of them like on their entertainment page or whatever and they had like a goofy picture of each of them and they named them scary spice sporty spice baby spice and the spice girls were like all right, all right. that's our names <laughs> and that's what it was so it was supposed to be like a disparaging like look at these dumb girls like one is sporty and one is scary and one looks like a baby one's so posh one's so posh yeah she doesn't even smile um she still doesn't <laughs> or sing <laughs> or sing or do anything useful um i found out sidebar what? i no, found please. out she wasn't even in the studio when they recorded wannabe she was just like on the phone and like she sang like one note zig zig ah that's yeah. what she did no that's she it. Did, she, she's like hardly not even appears in the song doesn't have any verses well yeah because she couldn't sing i don't know how that woman got even in the band she must have just known somebody <laughs> whatever she's rich it doesn't matter um so anyway monet He's exactly like the Spice Girls. Um, <laughs> remember that. Remember that's that, your, uh, That's your clue. Mm-hmm. So in 1876, Camille Monet became ill with, say it with me, tuberculosis. <laughs> All right. The, the answer is always tuberculosis. Unless, Except, until it's unless syphilis it's and then syphilis. it's syphilis. So their second son, Michel, was born on March 17th, 1878. And this second child weakened her already fading health. So in the summer of that year, the family moved to the village of Vitoy, where they shared a house with the family of Ernest Oshade, who was a wealthy department store owner and patron of the arts. And in 1878, Camille Monet was diagnosed with uterine cancer, which is just like one thing after another, this poor woman. Poor Camille. She died on September 5th, 1879 at the age of 32. Like I'm older than that. Yikes. I know. Yikes. So um, Monet made a study in oils of his dead wife. So many years later, Monet confessed to his friend, George Clemenceau, that his need to analyze colors was both the joy and torments of his life. He explained, I one day found myself looking at my beloved wife's dead face and just systematically noting the colors according to an automatic reflex. I know it's very sad. So after several difficult months following the death of Camille, Monet began to create some of his best paintings of the 19th century. Uh, During the early 1880s, Monet painted several groups of landscapes and seascapes, which he considered to be campaigns to document the French countryside. Uh, These began to evolve into a series of pictures, which he documented the same scene many times in order to capture the changing of light and the passing of the season. So this is a very key thing about Monet is that he never he almost never painted anything just once Mm -hmm. or even twice he would paint the same landscape 30 times 17 times a dozen times because he loved the way a landscape or a scene looked with like a cloudy day or just before dusk or right the beginning of the morning just before the sun comes out like all of these different times with different weather and different light patterns because his like idea was to capture every color that this landscape could possibly be seen in in Mm -hmm. the human eye so he was super into that um so monet's friend ernest hochaday became bankrupt and left in 1878 for belgium and after the death of camille monet in september 1879 and while monet continued to live in the house in uh, vithoy Alice Hochaday, who was uh, Ernest's wife, helped Monet to raise his two sons, Jean and Michel, and she took them to Paris to live alongside her own six children, one of whom, Blanche, married Jean Monet. Yeah. Uh, Monet, uh, Alice Hochaday, and the children moved to Vernon, then to a house in Giverny, where he planted a large garden and where he painted for much of the rest of his life. The famous Water Lilies series is from his garden and pond, Mm -hmm. so he's like actually painting 
his gardens. Yeah, he he like he cultivated his gardens to make yes. them be as beautiful as he could for his yes for his paintings yeah. exactly. Um, so following the death of her estranged husband, uh, Monet married Alice Oshaday in 1892. Hmm. So Monet's second wife, Alice, died in 1911, and his oldest son, Jean, who had married Alice's daughter, Blanche, Monet's particular favorite, died in 1914. Um, after Alice died, Blanche looked after and cared for Monet, and it was during this time that Monet began to develop the first sign of cataracts. Ah. Um, so during World War I, in which his younger son, Michel, served and his friend and admirer, Georges Clemenceau, led the French nation, uh, Monet painted a series of weeping willow trees as homage to the French fallen soldiers. Yeah. In 1923, he underwent two operations to remove his cataracts, and the paintings done while the cataracts affected his vision have a general reddish tone, which is characteristic of the vision of cataract victims. Oh, wow. So it, it may also be that after surgery, he was able to see certain ultraviolet wavelengths of light that are normally excluded by the <gasps> lens of the eye. So he had like hypervision. Oh my goodness. And this had may have had an effect on the colors he perceived. And after his operations, he even repainted some of the paintings with bluer water lilies than before. He was like, oh man, I can see so much blue now. <laughs> so he died of lung cancer on December 5th, 1926 at the age of 86. And he is buried in the Giverny Church Cemetery. Uh, Monet had insisted on his uh, that his funeral be simple, thus only about 50 people attended the ceremony. And at his funeral, his longtime friend, Georges Clemenceau, removed the black cloth draped over the coffin, stating, no black for Monet, and replaced it with a flower pattern cloth. Aww. So Monet has been described as the driving force behind Impressionism. So crucial to the art of the Impressionist painters was the understanding of the effects of light on the local color of objects and the effects of the juxt- juxtaposition of colors with each other. So Monet's long career as a painter was spent in the pursuit of this aim. He thought in terms of colors and shapes rather than scenes and objects, and he used bright colors and dabs and dashes and squiggles of paint. In 1877, a series of paintings at St. Lazare Station had Monet looking at smoke and steam and the way they affected color and visibility, being sometimes opaque and sometimes translucent. He was to further use the study in the painting of effects of mist and rain on the landscape. The study of the effects of atmosphere were to evolve into a number of series of paintings in which Monet repeatedly painted the same subject in different lights at different hours of the day and through the changes of weather and seasons. Like with the haystacks and stuff. Like with the haystacks, exactly. This process began in 1880s and continued until the end of his life in 1926. So speaking of haystacks, his first series exhibited as such was of haystacks. Um, painted from different points of view and at different times of the day. And in 1892, he produced 26 views of the Rouen Cathedral. And in these paintings, Monet broke with painterly traditions by cropping the subject so that only a portion of the facade is seen in the canvas. (laughs) So he wasn't like, he didn't want to paint the cathedral. He wanted to paint what the light looked like on the facade of the cathedral. So he was like, we don't need all this. I'm going to look at this right here. Um, The paintings do not focus on the grand medieval building, but on the play of light and shade across its surface, transforming the solid masonry. So other series of his include Poplars, Morning on the Seine, and the Water Lilies, which were painted on his property as Giverny. Um, Between 1883 and 1908, Monet traveled to the Mediterranean, where he painted landmarks, landscapes, and seascapes, including a series of paintings in Venice. And in London, he painted four series, The Houses of Parliament, London, Charing Cross Bridge, Waterloo Bridge, and Views of Westminster Bridge. And if you are local to the Rochester area, come see Monet's Waterloo Bridge Vision in Process at the Memorial Art Gallery now through January 7th. Just a little plug for my museum. Uh-huh. But um, that shows uh, in a really visual and very impactful way Monet's Waterloo Bridge, of which we borrowed seven from other institutions wow. around the country. And we have one. Um, and so they're all different views of different lights and different things. And it's very beautiful. 
Um, and it just really shows that um, Monet was looking to just constantly, constantly, constantly like improve. Um, so there's something to remember about Monet is that there isn't just one water lilies. Mm-hmm. There's several water lilies. Right. And there isn't just one haystacks. So several he's haystacks. not very well known for any people in his paintings. Is he like, I know he did people paintings yeah. early in his work, but like you don't know him for his, his portrait of the blah, blah, no. blah. So if you're confusing Manet and Monet, a good thing to think of is, is there a person in this painting? Yeah. Is there a person in this painting? It's probably Manet. A man. Like man. Oh my God. That's a. very good, Julia. Man A. Yeah. And Man A, his, his colors tend to be darker. He has a lot more contrast. Mm-hmm. It's very like thick, like outlines of people and objects in his paintings. Mm-hmm. And Monet is very like fluffy and light. You get to, you see detail only as you Monet, step away. Like, like you're looking at the, at the sunset and you're like, oh. Yeah. Like, oh. oh, nay. Oh, nay. That's good. I like that a lot. So that is my first part of my two part series. I have to tell everybody something. No, please tell everyone okay. something. I I never steer anybody wrong with television recommendations. Absolutely not. Um, on Netflix now and also all over YouTube, there is a show which I've never heard of before and I can't believe I haven't. It's a BBC show called Faker Fortune. And it's um, an art hist- like an art historian and an art dealer and they go around the country solving mysteries. This is a real story. Oh my God, it's such like, a good real- idea. Every episode they have like somebody contacts them and they're like a painting in their family's manner that of course you know their great uncle told them belong to Renoir mm-hmm. and that Renoir gave it to their great aunt and they just don't have a paper trail for it and nobody will accept it as real because they think the signature looks off but they they know it's been hanging in their yeah. house for a hundred years so these people they do a lot of research they go to archives they go visit other museums they get testing done on like paint samples of these things to make oh sure gosh. they're authentic um, they've gone around like to different places to figure out where somebody painted a picture and that to me has oh, been like cool. incredible to get to see some of these episodes so they did an episode on Monet I won't give any spoilers but they okay. did visit the mansion at, they did visit his house at Giverny oh my God. Um, and you know they're interested in talking about like how his will was executed and mm-hmm. where you know what was listed in the inventory of his paintings yep. and that kind of thing and I mean every episode has been great so sometimes a painting gets authenticated as a real thing and that now it's worth 20 million pounds oh and gosh. hooray for everybody. Sometimes somebody refuses to authenticate it or <gasps> sometimes it is proven to be a fake. Oh my God. It's so good, guys. So if you also, you know, you're it's winter time, you got some yeah. time on your hands, mm-hmm. you want to cozy up and learn some more about art, this is a really great way in because each episode that they do about a particular yeah. artist, they also do a lot of background information and like biographical information and they show you different paintings of theirs. Oh, okay. It's a really great way to like get a learn sense. a lot in an interesting hour. Yeah, get a sense of an artist's oeuvre, oeuvre. if you will. His oeuvre. The catalogue raisonné. Yes, exactly. The catalogue raisonné. So um, this is actually my first part of a two-part part series. Uh, so this part is one. What are you? Some kind of Rembrandt part one. And then part two will be after Christmas. So we shall see. <laughs> so my quiz today is something I, something a little different. <laughs> I saw this blank sheet of paper and I was like, oh no. <laughs> no, that's not it. So my quiz today is something a little different than what I normally do. Okay. So because of Monet and Manet, because they sound so similarly, 
I decided to do, um, it's called There's No Right Way to Write a Quiz, a Quiz on Homophones. Oh, great. So I'm going to name, in every question, I'm going to name the two definitions of each homophone, and you tell me what the so homophones are. This is celebrity are. homophone? This is celebrity homophone. <laughs> no, it's the other one. Yeah, yeah. It's the other one. Okay, question number one. These homophones mean traveled on a plane and part of a chimney. Question number two. A member of the deer family and a delicious creamy dessert. Question number three. An arm of a tree and a male curtsy. Number four. Body tissue composed of cells and fibers and a freshwater clam. Question number five. Mother superior and zero. Question number six. A vacation on a luxury boat and a man who loves yogurt. Question number seven. A harness for a horse and of or relating to a wedding. Question number eight. Unable to produce offspring and a type of nobleman. Question number nine. A type of razor and a narrow body of water. And finally, question number 10, what a sailor makes and a 90s insult. We'll give you a minute to think about it. We'll be right back with answers. Okay. All right. I love this. Okay, great. All right. I love words. Words, man. Words, words, words. Okay. Question number one. These homophones mean traveled on a plane and part of a chimney. It's F-L-E-W and F-L-O-O. Uh, it's F-L-U-E. <laughs> but on, I'll give it to in you. In Harry Potter, it's F-L-O-O. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. The flu network. Flu and flu. Yes. Okay. Question number two. A member of the deer family and a delicious creamy dessert. A moose. A moose and a moose. Good job. Question number three. An arm of a tree and a male curtsy. Um, is it a bow? Yes, a bow and a bow. Yes. Good job. Question number four. Body tissue composed of cells and fibers and a freshwater clam. A muscle. A muscle and a muscle. Yes. You're doing great. Question <laughs> number five. Mother superior and zero. None. None and none. I'm very proud of this one. Question number six, a vacation on a luxury boat and a man who loves yogurt. I think it's going to be cruise. Cruise and cruise. Yes. (laughs) Only because like yesterday, Lauren told me that um, her husband has no idea who Terry Crews is. He has no idea. He's seen him in several movies and television shows and he still cannot ID Terry Crews out of a lineup. Because 
if if Terry Crews has hair in a movie, forget it. He can't identify Terry Crews. He if I shaved my head tomorrow, he would not recognize me as his wife. Honestly, I think it's it's the hair that changes and he cannot keep up with it. He knows this. He's not this will not be a surprise to him when he listens to this episode. Okay. <laughs> Question number 7. A harness for a horse and and of or relating to a wedding. Bridle. Bridle and bridle. Good job. You're killing it. Question number 8. Unable to produce offspring and a type of nobleman. Now this is where I got stuck. Um okay. a noble. Do you want me to tell you? Yep, here we are. It is um fine. What is okay. it? Okay. It's Baron. Baron uh, and Baron. Okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay. Question number nine. A type of razor and a narrow body of water. It's straight. It is straight. And finally, question number ten, what a sailor makes and a nineties insult. Hmm. What a sailor makes. Uh, not yes <laughs> it is not good job good job nine out of ten that's pretty good um so uh thanks for listening guys I, I hope you enjoyed my art um topic uh we did get a tweet from uh one of our listeners her name is natty at natty delightful and uh she pointed out to us that the dictionary.com word of the of the year is misinformation so we so are. thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> thank you to our listeners. Thank you for the campaigning for dic- dictionary.com to have us as the, yeah, we're, as we'll the word of the year. At di- the dictionary headquarters to accept our award. Yep. We're at a later date. We're getting on um, like one of those. Uh, we're getting a trophy. Yeah. Uh, and no money <laughs> because guess what? Dictionaries. I think we have to pay them. I think for we have trophy. to pay them. Yeah. yeah. We got to fly our, we got to find our own way to dictionary.com wherever that is. Nebraska somewhere. I'm assuming middle of the country. Um, but yeah, so misinformation is the word of the year. Um, and it has been a good year for us. So yeah. that's good. So, uh, if you want to, uh, get in touch with us and, uh, tell us about what you think of our, my art topic, or if you have any other topics that you want to talk to us about, or even some listener submitted trivia, um, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at misinfopod on Twitter. Um, and you can also contact us on our Facebook page, uh, misinformation colon a trivia podcast. And you can also, uh, stream us on our website, triple dub dot misinfopod.com. Um, you're already listening to us, but maybe a friend you know would like us too. Yeah. Um, so we're on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, um, Google Play, Stitcher, and whatever podcast app you prefer using our RSS feed. So thank you very much. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah, tell a friend. Thank you so much for all of your emails and tweets and stuff. It's been really fun getting to yeah. hear from new listeners who are going through our back catalog yep. and um, people who are, you know, finding us finding us yeah finding us yeah that's great great so thanks so much for listening guys we'll catch you next time Bye. bye